Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week, we're looking at Japan and the historic changes underway in its foreign and security policy. In March, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida visited Kyiv, marking the first time a Japanese leader has visited an active war zone since the Second World War. This comes amid successive changes in posture, in the jargon, as to how Japan approaches national security concerns. We're going to talk about whether Tokyo is moving away from its pacifist constitution, what role the rise of China and the invasion of Ukraine has played, and whether this is the culmination of former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo's vision of Japan as a normal country. We'll also be looking more widely to Tokyo's relations with its neighbours, not just with China, but also South Korea. With the Prime Minister expected to visit Seoul in the next few days, we look at why these two democracies, both of which are US allies, find themselves often at odds. And finally, because it is definitely Coronation Week here in London, we can't resist discussing how the UK fits into all this. With both Japan and the UK facing sluggish economic growth, royal families of different kinds struggling in the modern world, and complex relations with neighbours, do the UK and Japan have more in common than we realise? We have a terrific team to discuss all this this week. Joining me in the studio is Robert Ward, who's the Japan Chair and Senior Fellow with the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Welcome. Thank you, Bronwyn. Joining us down the line is Valerie Nikkei, a Senior Research Fellow and Head of the Japan Programme with the Foundation for Strategic Research. Welcome. Thank you. Very good to have you here. And finally, joining us from Singapore is Professor Alessio Patalano, an expert on East Asia and a professor with King's College London. Welcome, Alessio. Delighted to join you today. Thank you. Delighted to have you. Well, let's start with this question of whether Japan is becoming a normal country, to pick up that quote, in foreign affairs. Robert, could I start with you? The Prime Minister visited Kyiv in March. What did that mean and what did he do there? Well, as you said earlier, Bronwyn, um, this was an historic visit for uh, a Japanese prime minister to go to a war zone, first time since the uh, end of the Second World War. Uh, Really important that he did, of course, because Japan's got the presidency of the G7 this year and Japan, um, the the Japanese prime minister was the only leader not to have gone uh, so far. So really important that he did for for his G7 uh, point of view. Uh, but also, um, I think it was a sort of the physical embodiment of what the prime minister has been talking about since uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. And that is that the European and Asian security theatres are linked. Um, he sees those he sees the two as as very, very closely related, uh, not just because of um, uh, obvious parallels with potential Taiwan contingency, but also the broader threat to the international order. Uh, the rule of law that uh, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine uh, presents. And this is something that Japan has been very, very strong in, in pushing, obviously under Kishida, but also uh, very strongly under, under Abe's, uh, Abe Shinzo's second administration in 2012 to 2020. So Ukraine has played a part in this changing worldview, but Valerie, has the rise of China affected the foreign policy of Japan as well? Yes, indeed. I think that the rise, uh, not only the rise of China, but the aggr- what is perceived justly, I think, as a, an aggressive uh, rise of China in Japan's vicinity, and it's not new. Uh, it is one of the major factors for uh, Japan's evolution in terms of foreign policy. Uh, Japan needs to maintain alliance with the U.S., so it means that they have to do what is expected in terms of budget increase or going to Kiev or, you know, 
look very uh, side along the west in order to ensure that facing China perceived as a threat, uh, Japan will never be alone. So this is, I think, the main factor for Japanese changing policy, including in defense affairs in matters. Let me just pick up that point of defense affairs. Alessio, you're a security expert. What does Japan bring to the table in the way of military and security capabilities? So I think the first point to make is that um, long before um, East Asia uh, caught the attention at the international level, Japan was more already one of the top world military powers. Uh, already in the mid-1990s, uh, Japan was sitting between the fifth and the seventh largest military power, according to different way of, of, of calculating that. And um, so, so the, the baseline um, for this conversation is it's already quite significant. Um, and investments, whilst they changed in the early 2000s, they came back quite prominently under Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. So last December announcement uh, for the new national security strategy and the announcement also of uh, uh, an increase of the defense budget in a way that is comparable to uh, NATO standards with the 2% of the GDP dedicated to it. Um, it has to be understood against that broader backdrop of a country that is already and was already a pretty sophisticated but bringing capabilities to the table uh, has, has two very important, significant meanings insofar as Japan is concerned. Um, Japan possesses one of the most modern and advanced uh, navies and coast guards um, in the world, and certainly at the very top end of the spectrum when it comes to East Asia. So the stability of the maritime order um, is something that Japan has been contributed to and can contribute uh, to quite significantly. In that sense, there is also a softer edge to it that the Japanese have been committed already um, through capacity building and participation on um, activities such as uh, HADR, disaster relief, um, for the better part of two to three decades. So that's one element of the equation. But the other more significant point that really is something that uh, Japan is likely to contribute more over the foreseeable future is the uh, intention to expand cyberspace and strike capabilities. So populate the uh, air battle space that at the moment is one in which uh, China is, is leading at the regional level. And certainly, given the spending in Japan, um, is one other area where I can certainly see where, where, where the, the Japanese government will be able to mobilize its statecraft in military sense to a much greater extent than we've seen so far. Alessio, thank you for taking us through that, um, that, that range of capabilities. And uh, absolutely right to mention the, the decades of development spending that Japan has, uh, has committed uh, as part of its uh, international presence. But Robert, I wonder if you could just take us through how Japan's in successive prime ministers, the, the views about how Japan might use this capability have been changing. It's been a live debate for a long time, hasn't it? I remember when I was on Okinawa some years ago before the pandemic talking to Japanese and American officials. A lot of people making the point, look, it is a long time since the Second World War and these things need to evolve. Well, I think if you look at the, the successive prime ministers since the end of the Second World War, um, there, there are a few that really sort of stand out in foreign policy terms um, and, how, and trying to sort of link foreign policy with, with defence policy. Of those few, I would single out uh, Nakasone in the 1980s. 
uh, did did a lot, of course, to, to sort of uh, to try to sort of pull Japan uh, more close, more uh, closer to the uh, to the U.S. while smoothing out uh, um, economic friction uh, with with the U.S. Perhaps um, Hashimoto in the 1990s. Uh, he um, did uh, updated the U.S. Uh, Japan defense cooperation guidelines for the first time since 1978. Uh, and then, of course, uh, a, bit, a bit more recently, uh, Koizumi in the early 2000s. Again, but all of these uh, three focusing really on the U.S. primarily. I think what is interesting about uh, Abe Shinzo, who we've been obviously talking about uh, on, in this podcast already, um, is Abe's um, desire to sort of really broaden uh, Japanese foreign policy, uh, to link it to uh, a stronger uh, defense posture, um, and to really try to in, uh, reform in, in Japan's institutions, um, how it thinks about foreign policy, how it how it makes decisions uh, at the top level. Um, and he's uh, eight years in, in power, as I said, 2012 to 2020. Really, really I- important um, within the region as well. Look at, for example, the Indo-Pacific concept that, that Abe sort of gave life to its sort of modern modern form. Um, through his speech in 2007 in the Indian Parliament, the Confluence of Two Seas speech. And then, of course, the free and open Indo-Pacific concept, which is being used in the US and in Europe in, 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 in strategic discussions. When you said the earlier policy was sort of inspired by dialogue with the, with the US, this, isn't, this is still very much what the US would like to see from Japan, isn't it? I, absolutely, uh, particularly recently, because um, you know the Indo-Pacific. If you look at it on the map, it's huge, uh, and the challenge from China, uh, as as Valerie said, is is increasing. Um, so the U.S. can't do this on its own. The relative uh, balance of power is is of course changing. So the U.S. needs needs help. Um, but I think it's not just the U.S. It's also this sort of second term that uh, that Abe has, has had as as prime minister. Um, he really pushed uh, Japan to be able to sort of fulfil a bigger role uh, within within the U.S. Um, Security Alliance to give Japan greater agency, so it could that would help it to sort of step up to what Abe wanted as a sort of tier one status uh, globally. Valerie, how does Japan reconcile this with its pacifist constitution? This is quite a change that Robert is describing. As was mentioned, the perception, including in public opinion, of a rising, threatening China has played a very important role in making the public in, in Japan change its position and accept uh, an increased role in terms of security, maybe more than defense. Uh, this is true that, I mean, the challenge of really participating to defense, uh, hard defense operations in Japan is still uh, not problematic, maybe. There are a lot of debates, uh, better preparation, a lot of discussion about these things, but uh, we don't know, I mean, for instance, we still do not know how uh, Japan, uh, in putting the public opinion factor, would react if there were a real crisis in the Taiwan threat, and how the government would accept uh, to give the use, uh, the logistic use of its bases to the United States. So all these issues are still discussed and not solved. But indeed, compared with 10 years ago, public opinion in Japan is in favor of a, of a greater role for Japan. And what do you think public opinion says about Taiwan and China's intentions towards Taiwan? It is a major factor because as Kishida particularly stressed the fact that, you know, after the war in Ukraine, as a big word in uh, in Japan today is uh, Ukraine today is maybe Asia, Taiwan tomorrow. And it, it has been a very important uh, 
way to uh, make public opinion accept some evolutions like the most recent changes uh, in defense policy, in, uh, giving more, uh, more uh, an increased role, for instance, for uh, strike capabilities, longer distance strike capabilities, increase of the budget, which is a very important point. Uh, it's not maybe as, you know, the increase is not as large as maybe some may expect, but still it, it's a big, big jump, especially at a time with the, when the economy in Japan is not going so well, there is a big inflation. Uh, but before, because of the risk of a crisis in Taiwan on what happened in Ukraine, it has been much easier. It has not been one of the elements that people reproach to Prime Minister Kishida. On the contrary, uh, he had very poor uh, result in terms of uh, public opinion poll. But his activism on the international scene, including going to Africa, going to North, going to South Korea, sorry, uh, for the first time, going to Ukraine, all this played rather well. And related to security, it played rather well in terms of perception in public opinion in Japan. So there is a, a big change. Big change on lots of fronts. I mean, we're not going to go uh, this way, but it, it's, it's uh, for many, many decades, um, uh, inflation was uh, was not a problem in Japan. Uh, it, was, it was very much the reverse we were all talking about. Alessio, just if we come on to this question of, of Taiwan and what Japan might do, I had a very sobering discussion with the leading Chinese academic last night about all the things that China might do to make life difficult in Taiwan, uh, the anaconda strategy, as it's been called, blockades and and, and, and dealing uh, and, and sanctions on companies dealing with Taiwan and so on, as well as obviously the military threat. What is what is your take of what Japan could actually do? Um, again, let me sort of take a, a, a bit of a step back here, because um, the point about these are, I think, an assumption that needs to be corrected a little bit about the Japanese constitution and what it does is what it does not allow the country to do. Um, Article 9, which is at the heart of the question of, of the nature of the Japanese constitution when it comes to these matters, um, is designed in a way, it was designed in a way, to be, to be very contextual. In other words, the, the, the Japanese sort of level of capabilities and um, as a result of that also participation to political and security processes would be always uh, shaped against what the regional security landscape is. And so the first point to make is that the changes in the recognition of the, um, the fast degraded nature of the security landscape has been a really important factor, not so much in the challenge to the constitution, but how the political elites in Japan are now starting to feel more comfortable at engaging with um, a broader conversation as to what roles Japan uh, would, could, should have in different security issues. Now, Taiwan is one of those, and certainly is a very important one. And why that preliminary observation is, is significant? It is significant because um, it's not that Taiwan's or the, the, the cross-strait relations or the stability of the strait did not matter to Japanese security before. It did. Um, and in fact, um, you can sort of go back to the uh, late 1970s when uh, the first sort of maritime strategies developed in Japan, de facto addressed the question of the um, stability of, of the Strait of Taiwan, although it did that in relation to um, the Cold War and the dynamics between the Soviet Union and the United States. 
in the Japanese more recent military debate internally since the mid-2000s, certainly 2007, 2008, when former Admiral Takei, uh, former uh, chief of the Navy in Japan, um, started to really reintroduce the question of the um, uh, across the strait and stability across the strait into what you know potential implication militarily this would have for Japan. So what you've seen at the moment, certainly in the last few months, it's a closing of the gap between a military conversation about what Japan should and could do and um, with the broader political question uh, about whether politically it is within the realm of the possible on, or indeed of the desirable for the Japanese to do so. Within this context, I think what's been really interesting to see is um, a continuous reference um, within uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, pressure activities um, to actions that would speak to intimidating, if you want, Japan from being more actively engaged over this question. Remember the military exercises last uh, summer that the Chinese conducted with some of the splash areas well within the Japanese exclusive economic zone. Is it your feeling that it is um, deterring Japan from doing more? How does it leave Japan's strategy? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that the opposite is true. I mean, and, and this has been consistent, whether you read the Japan defense paper of the last two to three years, certainly the last two years, or the new national um, security strategy and the defense strategy. Um, the Japanese will see any major contingency, which goes from sanctions with the implementation of quarantines to um, missile barrages to... Um, increasingly more kinetic options that would not see the Japanese standing by. Partly because their assumption is that any picket lines to exclude any sort of United States uh, support to Taiwan would see the Chinese uh, putting targets um, inside of the Japanese archipelago. So it is not possible anymore for the Japanese from a political point of view to just turn a blind eye to the situation. And the revision of the guidelines and the new strategy suggests as much. Thank you very much for that. Let's use that as a pivot to talk about our second uh, aspect of this subject, which is Japan's relationship, not just with China, but South Korea. Um, Robert, perhaps we could start with you on this. In a, in a way, it seems um, redundant to say why are relations between South Korea and Japan often tense. There's a long, long history there. Um, but how? What is, what is the feeling around this imminent trip of the Prime Minister? Well, this is a, a fraught relationship. Um, as, as you said, Bronwyn, I mean, history plays a big role. Um, Japan's occupation of uh, the Korean Peninsula in 1910 to 1945 was brutal, um, has left uh, scars, um, differences over, uh, over this shared history, differences over uh, reparations, uh, whether they're still liable, the Japan's still liable for reparations. There's territorial dispute uh, to sort of add to the mix. Um, this is a, a very, very difficult uh, relationship. It had its ups and downs. Um, brief flowering in 1998-2003 under Kim Dae-jung, who was uh, thought that he had to um, improve relations with, with Japan, and Japan reciprocated. Um, then they deteriorated uh, after Koizumi uh, went to Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo. Um, got a bit better in 2015 with the Abe Pak uh, agreement, and then chilled, well, froze, actually, uh, after that. So... Um, relations uh, since, particularly since this year, um, are getting much, much better. Um, and it largely reflects um, the new administ newish administration in Seoul. 
uh, President uh, Yoon's administration. This is one of the most pro-Japanese uh, uh, administrations for decades. Uh, in Seoul, I would argue, um, very, very uh, keen uh, the UN administration is to improve things uh, with uh, with Japan. Um, there's st good strategic reasons for this. Uh, largely, um, South Korea is an uh, ally of the security ally of the US, so is Japan. Um, so this, this sort of trilateral relationship really matters for regional uh, stability. Um, Kishida has reciprocated Yoon's overture. So Yoon was in um, Tokyo the other day. I think that was the first visit to Japan via South Korean president for 12 years. Extraordinary, given how close physically uh, these countries are. Um, uh, Kishida will go, uh, to, um, uh, go to Seoul uh, in a few days, as you said. I think this is the first visit uh, to uh, South Korea by Japanese prime minister since 2018. So what we're seeing is sort of more um, points of contact now developing, more security uh, cooperation, which is absolutely essential given the challenge from uh, China, uh, North Korea, and of course Russia now in uh, in the region, uh, more economic uh, cooperation as well. So th things are really looking up. And I think what, um, what Kishida, with his visit to Seoul, uh, with his looming visit to Seoul, will hope to achieve is to, is to really kind of embed the muscle memory of communication uh, between these two in the, in the bilateral relationship. So it becomes a, a much more sort of standard thing rather than having these sort of years where, where nobody goes and, and visits anybody else. Um, that all sounds very optimistic. Valerie, what do you think the potential is of this relationship? So I, uh, of course, the potential is very important as uh, including from Japan and from South Korea, North Korea, South Korea sorry, there is a, a strong um, uh, incentive to improve relationship between the two. And since the change of presidency in South Korea, things are much better. But when, uh, and of course, the U.S. are also putting a lot of pressure on both allies in order to achieve functioning better security relations between the two. There is this triangular relationship between US, South Korea, and Japan, and it's an absolute necessity to maintain stability in Northeast Asia. However, one must not forget that uh, if the president is rather, is often qualified as pro-Japan in South Korea, this is not the case for the par parliament yet. And so his situation is very fragile, and he could be accused very easily by some other political parties in South Korea if he leans too much on the side of Japan. So Japan has also to be very understanding and try to give him a lot of, as we say in Asia, face in order to help him achieve this uh, change, tremendous change of policy from South Korea. It is a tremendous change, as you're saying. Alessio, uh Briefly, uh, do the military and intelligence have much cooperation? I think this is the one very important point that will need to be addressed sooner rather than later. The Japanese and the Koreans are the very important sort of advancements, uh, particularly on the front of uh, sharing intelligence. And, and that was because of the full nature of the political dynamics between the domestic constituencies, if you want, of the countries. But now that should change. And I think a good weather gauge for how far the relationship and how uh, how much of the new improvement we can talk about? Really, going to be sort of how they're going to pick up speed again over the discussion of of, 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 of intelligence sharing, and the back of that, how that will then speak to enhance um, the size opportunities of finality and, in particular, finality with the United States. Okay, thank you very much. And let me just, as I said right at the beginning, ask uh, Valerie and Robert whether 
Valerie, you're sitting in Tokyo at the moment. Whether you think that Japan has got any lessons for the UK at the moment, either uh, on the royal domain or indeed in the sober economic front. Well, I don't know if uh, Japan has a lot of lessons for the UK right now, but what is indeed absolutely certain is that the Anglophile sentiment in Japan is extremely strong. So as a French, very often I deplore the fact that for to some of my uh, Japanese colleagues in Europe, the main most important partner is the UK rather than the uh, as poor friends, you know. <laughs> and of course there are reasons for that. Constantly, uh, Japan remain, reminds uh, that uh, the UK is the closest ally of the US, and so for Japan it's a natural closest ally too. And uh, for the UK, global, global UK too, I mean Japan is a very good partner. Uh, the UK wants to be uh, part of the CPTPP, so uh, uh, it's an important point at the economic level. There is that uh, project of uh, the next generation fighter with uh, Italy and uh, the UK as the main partners. I know that there are not discussions, but uh, it's uh, it's going. So I think that the two really want to to work well together. So we will see <laughs> that's how it develops. And, Thank you uh, for that. Roles that you take play. Uh, yeah, in uh, in the Indo-Pacific, I think we need everyone there. I mean, in order to better balance uh, powers like China, an absolute necessity to work together. So I think it's a good thing. Thank you for that, and that is absolutely what the Foreign Secretary uh, was saying in his speech um, very recently. Robert, your thoughts? Well, there, there are some pleasing symmetries uh, in um, in Japan and uh, and and the UK. Uh, actually, I've. I, first became aware of this uh, when I studied Russian uh, in, in the 1980s. And I have a book still, which, which is called the, the Oak Tree and the Cherry Tree. So even in the Soviet Union, they were looking at these two countries as, uh, as having, having links. Um, but I think the important thing now, thing now is that the relationship is, particularly since Brexit, has sort of changed from uh, the relationship that we had, I suppose, between from the 80s to the uh, until sort of Brexit, um, where which was more kind of investment in manufacturing in the UK and finance and, and so on. And since Brexit, and particularly with the the tensions in the Indo-Pacific, as, as Valerie says, um, the relationship now is becoming far more geopolitical, geostrategic. Uh, and there's some really important sort of complement, I suppose, strategic complementarities uh, between the two. Um, Japan, as Valerie said, uh, sees uh, networking the like-minded within the Indo-Pacific as a really important way of, of, of boosting deterrence, um, of stabilizing the region, and the UK is one of the few European powers capable of uh, deploying pa military power uh, into the Indo-Pacific is obviously really, really important uh, in, in security terms uh, for Japan. Uh, will Japan at some, at some point uh, have an association with AUKUS, for example? So there's lots of, sort of touch points there. The RAA that um, the two countries um, uh, have now uh, as well as sort of another more evidence of this sort of deepening security relationship, but also on the sort of geoeconomic front too. Um, CPTPP, as, as Valerie mentioned, um, really important not not for trade so much for the UK, obviously, um, but more for for, for geopolitics. Um, the UK will be the second largest. Um, country economy in the CPTPP by a long way. And I think Japan is looking to the UK 
to help it to shape rules in the region via the CPTPP, to help it manage China and its plan to its desire to um, accede to the CPTPP as well. So this relationship is becoming really strategic and, and geopolitical. Um, so lots of complementarities there, I think. Really interesting. And that is one of the things the British government has been saying about life after Brexit and putting a lot of weight on it. Interesting to see that coming real. Well, we are going to have to leave it there before Robert and I at least walk out into an aerial forest of <laughs> Union flags over Regent Street. A big thank you to all my guests, Robert Ward, Valerie Niquet, Alessio Patalano. Do follow them all on Twitter. And we've got links in the show notes. A reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So please do like, follow, subscribe, share. Please do leave us a review. We always like to see what you think. And to read more from all our experts, or to find out more about our events, or to become a member, and we'd love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can find all our work. Next week, we'll be looking closer to home with Russia's deployment of nuclear weapons to Belarus with Keir Giles, Samantha de Bendern, and our Russia and Eurasia program. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox, and if you're in the UK, good luck with your coronation chicken and street parties. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.